Well, it would be really helpful to have your Bibles continue to be open. So at Acts chapter 11 or your Bible app at Acts chapter 11. And if it's helpful, there's an outline on the back of the news. So you might want to have that ready. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help as we open up God's Word. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this day. And we thank you for your incredible invitation to receive your word, to receive the good news of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that that invitation is open to all. And so we ask, Lord, please, in your kindness and by your compassion, that you might help us this morning in the power of your spirit to receive and delight in your word over and over again. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, week three in our series in Acts, Acts chapter 11, only to discover that Luke is still recounting the events surrounding Peter and Cornelius' visions, along with their subsequent meetup in Caesarea. So week one, we heard of Peter and Cornelius' visions, independent visions from God. Week two, we witnessed Peter and Cornelius actually meeting. Week three, so that's today, we see what happens as this event or news of this event makes its way all the way back to the mothership, back to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been away, you've been on holidays for a couple of weeks, quick recap of what previously has been happening in Acts. Cornelius, so a Gentile, had an angelic vision to dispatch some of his crew to Joppa in order that they would fetch Simon Peter and bring him back to Caesarea. Meanwhile, as Cornelius's crew are en route, Peter has an unsettling vision from God telling him that he can now eat whatever he wants, for God has made it clean, but also that he should go with the men who are about to arrive at the house at which he's staying. Moments later, the men arrive, there's a shout from the gate, and so Peter treks to Caesarea meets Cornelius and his friends, tells them the good news, which they receive along with the Spirit, and so baptises them all. It is really quite a whirlwind. Uh, Peter took some time to make sense of all of this. He took some time to process all of this. But now, as he realises that the vision he had wasn't just about God opening up the menu, to have an extensive menu, but, but removing the barriers from the good news going out into the world, but also showing him that the mark of an authentic believer is not the gospel plus particular practices or the gospel and belonging to a particular people group, but the mark of being an authentic believer is simply receiving the good news of Jesus. That's it. It's remarkable. And whilst we might think that Luke is a bit like a friend who tells you the same story over and over and over and over again, he does so. He does so to show us step by step the ripples and the repercussions of the news that the gospel is for everyone. In this chapter, or at least chapter 11, the first half of it, we witness how did the first believers respond to the news that Jesus is for everyone? And as we witness that, we're also really challenged to consider 
how do we respond? How are we responding to the news that Jesus is for everyone? The news that there are no favourites. That God has extended his compassion and his invitation to all. Of course, that's in keeping with God's vision for the world that we read throughout the Old Testament. It's in fulfilment of Jesus sending the disciples and us into the world. And this really matters. It, it matters if you're a Christian, because that means that this priority should shape every single aspect of our lives. It matters if you're not yet a Christian, because it also means that this good news is also for you. Now, when the first believers heard this news, what we read in Acts chapter 11, they gave Peter a pretty frosty reception, to say the least. Yet, miraculously, right here, we see a shift from objection to praise. And the bridge, the bridge by God's grace that helps them move from serious objection to humble praise is via Peter's patient explanation. So let's look at how those steps play out one by one. We witness a serious objection, a patient explanation, and a response of humble praise. So first, we witness a serious objection. So verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticised him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, when we first hear this, I think we can be a bit tempted to think, wow, these people, they are so pernickety, they're real party poopers carrying on like this, uh, you know, like the sort of person who really can't handle good news that's not for them, so they go and sulk in the corner. But I don't think that's really a fair reading of what is actually happening here. The news that Gentiles have received the word of God, that is, they've become followers of Jesus, has made its way through Judea and here to Jerusalem to other Jewish believers. Remember, the very first believers, the very first Christians, were Jews. That's why Luke says they had heard that Gentiles also had received the word of God. So this is pretty much a new development. Yes, Jesus, of course, had interacted with Gentiles. Yes, earlier in Acts, we read of Philip's encounter with and the conversion of the Ethiopian. Yes, some thought if Gentiles first became Jews, then they could become believers. But generally, on the whole, the idea that there was some sort of direct way for Gentiles to be included was just off the radar. If a a devout Jew could not even go in and share fellowship with a Gentile in their home, how could they possibly be part of and belong as God's people together? It was dodgy theology, but the reality is for many, it was unthinkable. And so as the news of Gentiles receiving the word of God, becoming Christians, goes out, note that the immediate sticking point for the criticism is not the baptism, but the thing they're perplexed by and just can't get past is, Peter, how could you? How does this even happen? 
How could you have the audacity, how could you have the shame to go into the house of uncircumcised men, those who aren't Jewish, and eat with them? It's almost like they stopped listening and switched off after that. It's like they're saying, you did, you did what, Peter? Likely, many of the first believers who were Jewish would have thought that in order to become a Christian, a person would first need to become a Jew, along with all of the practices uh, which that entails. That really gets thrashed out at the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts chapter 15. Some thought food laws and circumcision shouldn't apply to any believers. Some thought food laws and circumcision should only apply to Jewish believers. Some thought food laws and circumcision should apply to all believers. The group in Jerusalem, so the the people critiquing Peter, they seem likely part of that that last category, the the hardliners, the the most conservative of the bunch, who thought that the good news was exclusively only open to the Jewish people. Therefore, the only route for inclusion was to become a Jew. Remember, the rules and regulations weren't just things they did, but they were like a national flag pointing to their identity. They seem to have forgotten that part of God's purpose for them was that they would be a light to the nations, that they would be a help for all the world to come to know God. They were meant to be faithful to that call, but they were more focused on boundary-keeping goals. On one level, you can understand that. Remember, God gave the restrictions. But they had forgotten God's goal of reaching the nations and focused their goal on the fulfilment of rules and restrictions. Just at the end of last year, Theodore, so our middle child, he received his his first ever full Bible, so not a a kid's Bible, but his first Bible. And against all advice, he decided that he was going to read this from cover to cover, starting at page one. I thought it'd be a really good idea to start with the gospel or something like that, but he said, no, no, I'm going to start at page one. And actually, really to his credit, he has persisted book by book. And just last week, when I walked into his bedroom, he had just finished reading none other than Leviticus chapter 11. I said, you've, you've gotten a long way, actually, probably further than a lot of people, but he just finished none other than Leviticus chapter 11, which details God's very commands about clean and unclean animals. And so as I walk in the room and walk over to him sitting on his bed, he still has the Bible open. In fact, his hand is on the page. And as I got to him, he had this light bulb moment and exclaimed, this is what we're looking at at church at the moment. He said, they could not eat these things, but we know that now we can. So with his eyes in Leviticus, but his recent memory recalling Acts, he could make the connection between what had been unclean and what God had since declared clean. But of course, the Jewish believers didn't know any of that yet. They couldn't read Acts because they were the subject of Acts. No wonder they objected. And so Peter responds with patient explanation. 
Verse 4. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Now, I don't know how you respond to criticism, but I so love that Peter isn't arrogant, even though deeply convinced, no doubt, of what he had done. I love that he isn't angered, even though he could have really seen this as a personal attack. That he isn't dismissive, even though he may have considered this a waste of his time. And he isn't, it seems, even fearful, even though, even though others had been persecuted and even killed. But what does he do? He patiently and graciously lays out the facts. I think it's a really helpful example of how followers of Jesus should actually approach evangelism. Sometimes in the face of criticism, our knee-jerk reaction can be to be angry or arrogant or dismissive or fearful. But how Peter shows us a much better way. In fact, when we see his response, he's not only being, I think, really vulnerable, I think he's sincerely trying to engage with where they're really coming from. He's trying to understand where they're coming from. Imagine if we did that when someone asked a question about Christianity or might be quick to dismiss or to diminish what they may correctly or incorrectly believe about Jesus. It's almost like Peter is saying, I know, right? This sounds wild. I couldn't believe it either. However, I too was persuaded. He's inviting them to be persuaded too. Not on the basis of his authority, but very clearly on the authority of what God has done. So note Peter outlines the facts and the implications. So the facts, he just tells them everything that's happened, of where he was, of the visions that he and Cornelius had. He even recounts his resistance to what he first saw. And then he goes on to tell his willingness to go and share about who Jesus is, of his death and his resurrection, and that it was in response to sharing this very news that people came not only to receive the good news, but they too received the gift of the Holy Spirit, just as other believers had received on the day of Pentecost. So now Peter's just recalling the facts. But Peter doesn't just stop there, because he also wants them to grasp the implication that if God poured out his spirit to those who responded to the good news, in keeping with Jesus' promise at the ascension of being baptised with the Holy Spirit, just as had happened for them, it means, it must mean, therefore, not only can anyone be saved, but the means by which we are saved are not the things that we do or the customs that we uphold, however helpful some of those may be, but we're saved simply by receiving Jesus. When Peter says, if you have a look in verse 15, that the Spirit fell on them as he began to speak, this doesn't mean that the moment he begins you know, uttering a noise out of his mouth, those words, that they were filled with the, the Holy Spirit. It's not by Peter's power or action that they received the Holy Spirit. And so we see a bit more of the backstory in chapter 10. We get a fuller description of all of that that he was sharing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
And then he recounts they receive the gift of the Spirit, still as he is speaking. And so the picture is kind of extraordinary that as he is speaking and telling the news about Jesus, and as that news is evidently gripping their hearts and they're so responding by receiving Jesus, that their trust and belief in him, in Jesus, is accompanied by the Spirit filling them. Their receiving of the word is accompanied by the gift of the Spirit. And of course, the same is true today. There's not two categories of Christians, Christian A, and then Spirit-filled Christians. If you have put your trust in Jesus, then you have received the gift of the Spirit. I know so much damage that has been done by people being made to feel like second-class Christians or even being caused to doubt that they are a Christian. Peter wants them to see that they're not Christians because of practices they uphold or like Cornelius, the angelic appearances that they experienced, but simply by receiving the word of God about Jesus. So Christianity Christianity is not a a frequent flyer program, okay, in which there's a bronze level and then you can work your way all the way up to platinum or something like that with grades in between. There's no one for whom the gospel's off limits. There's also no second-class Christian. That's what Peter is showing them. That's also the confidence that we can have, that you can have. But Peter doesn't stop there. So note in verse 17, Peter takes the objective truth of what he's witnessed and he then lets that transform how he lives his life for God. So verse 17, So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who am I to stand in God's way? No doubt, Peter, in light of all that he shared, he also wanted them to ask that question of themselves. Who are we to stand in God's way? Now, of course, God will have his way. He is sovereign. But in a way, do they want to join in with what God is doing in the power of his spirit, reaching the nations? Or do they actually want to be an obstruction to how God is at work? That's enormously confronting. And of course, there's all sorts of ways in which we can stand in God's way, be it actively or passively. Actively, we can kind of work in the opposite direction or even against God's way. Sometimes when we're arrogant or angry or dismissive or disobedient, we can all end up doing that. Sometimes, actually, we miss the opportunity to be caught up in God's way simply because we're tired or because we just can't be bothered. This week, if you're brave enough, got a little bit of an experiment for you, that as you go about on all your different front lines and interact with different people, you might to, uh, like to try this and just be willing to ask yourself in each of those situations with those different people, am I standing in God's way or am I joining in with what God is doing? Now, I've tried to give that a bit of a test run this week and admittedly I've done it far too infrequently. But actually, the few times I've done it, it has been so helpful 
It's really helped me to be more excited about how God is at work. It's helped me to be more intentional about how God is inviting us to participate. It's been helpful being more honest about laying down my plans and priorities to pick up and jump into God's plans and priorities. Am I standing in God's way? Or am I joining in with what God is doing? Now let's be clear, this is not meant to be a guilt-invoking thing. If you trust in Jesus, your salvation is not in doubt. It's not a performance test. It's an exciting invitation. It's a continuous invitation. Wherever we go, on all of our front lines, not only are we equipped with God's Spirit, but God's Spirit is at work. Of course He is. And we, we're invited to join in. So Peter, he's not looking for some sort of endorsement from this conservative bunch. He wants them to get on board with God's mission. And of course, God is inviting us too. And incredibly, in response to this patient explanation, they respond with humble praise. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, I think we really just should stop for a moment because we really should take in what a miracle this is. They have come along confident and critical. Yet they have listened to what Peter has said. And when the questions are answered, once the theological debate has ceased, they're faced with two choices. Either to dig their heels in or humbly to acknowledge that this is indeed God's work. And what do they do? They humbly acknowledge that this is indeed God's work. They do what the prodigal son's brother would not. They praised God and they join in the celebration. It all clicks for them. Right back at the beginning of Acts, or almost at the beginning in chapter 2 of Acts, when some of the Jews heard the good news about Jesus for the very first time, Peter was explaining it to them. They say to him, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now they know that this news is not just for them, but for everyone. They now understand that repentance isn't just for them, but repentance, a, a saving turning to Jesus, is available to all. They went from objection to praise. If you're a believer, I think the implication is really clear. If we really believe that Jesus is good news, if we really believe that this news is for everyone, then surely we want to reflect that with every part of our lives to everyone. In God's kindness and the power of his spirit, he's inviting us through our lives and through our words to be part of his work, that people might hear and receive the good news and that they might move from objection to praise. 
And if you're here today, if you're joining us online, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that's the invitation before you today as well. You're invited to cross that bridge from objection to praise. If you have objections about God or about the claims of Jesus, I want to encourage you, don't just park them, don't just ignore them, but hold up those objections and test them against the facts. Every conversion story involves a movement from objection to praise. Is it humbling? Absolutely. It will mean laying down your life and your ambitions in place for living for God. It will mean admitting that we've got it wrong of saying sorry for our sin. It will mean acknowledging that we're not the author of our own lives. But oh, how it is worth it. For in receiving the good news of Jesus, in receiving Jesus, he not only gives us his spirit, he not only enjoins us in his mission, but he guarantees us life forever with him. Let's pray. Gracious God, how we give you so much thanks and praise that you indeed do not show any partiality. We thank you that in your great compassion and generosity, that your grace extends to every single person, that your invitation is open to all. Lord, I particularly pray for anyone here today or joining us online or listening to this later who has an objection or a whole raft of objections. Lord, I pray that you might so move them in the power of your spirit that they would hold up those objections and test them against the facts. Lord, please, won't you surround them with helpful people to come alongside and help with that as well. And Father, we thank you so much uh, for those of us who count ourselves as followers of Jesus, we thank you for the invitation and that we have received your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we ask you, please, would you help us to respond with our whole lives in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.